population is getting more noisy. And absolutely, we, in terms of conservation of animals uh, and protecting them, we need to be quite conscious that animals within the underwater world depend quite heavily on sound to be able to navigate uh, the marine system. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Field Reports podcast, where we talk about field work and science. Today, we're tackling the noise and the water, because this episode, we have a marine ecologist, Dr. Chandra Salgado-Kent from Curtin University in Australia. Thanks for being on the show, Chandra. For our audience who might not know about your work, could you briefly explain um, what you do? I've worked in marine biology, in fact, years, but it's the last 15 years that I've really focused on impacts of our activities, so human activities on marine mammals, and also of recreational activities, of some of our industry activities. So does it involve a lot of fieldwork? Do you go um, like underwater and collect your data? So definitely go on the water, and I say on, because normally it's on top of the surface of the water to do the observations on marine mammals. Uh, absolutely, out in the field a lot. So, so where do you go for, for your fieldwork? Where are your field sites? I'm really lucky, Ravi, because the work that I do actually takes me to a lot of different things. So I've been doing a lot of work in many areas of Australia. And then recently, I've just had an absolutely fantastic opportunity uh, last year to go and do some work in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. So that's literally about halfway between Hawaii and ocean rubbish. Uh, and we actually saw lots of, quite a number of marine mammals out there as well. And so, so what, what are the kind of animals that you study? Um, what are your study organisms? So they range from whales and a range of different species to dolphins and also uh, different species and also sea lions and, uh, and seals. So, so working with these animals, you must have had um, a few unexpected uh, challenges or failures. Did you have any such stories? which you would like to share with us? <laughs> Definitely. And uh, as you say, yeah, you've got to have those, right, uh, doing field work. So a few come to mind. So one that I clearly remember would have been maybe about five years ago, and we were doing field work down in an area that's called Geograph Base. So this is the southwest of Australia. Beautiful location. And I was doing work with several uh, different researchers, one of which was a fellow named Chris Burton, uh, who heads up Western Whale Research. And what had happened, as happens many times, is the funding actually took quite a while to come through. So this was from the International, um, sorry, <laughs> from the International Fund for Animal Welfare. And because the funding took time to come through, it we were starting our field work late. So the research was on blue whales as well as other marine mammals. But of course, you want to target the peak of the season, right? <laughs> so we had missed the peak. And I remember our first field day, he came around with the boat and he picked me up and I said, Chris, we're going to go out there and we may see nothing. And that is okay because zero is data as well. <laughs> so we went out. And obviously we were nervous because we needed to make sure we saw something, but we knew we had to just take it easy and, and take it step by step. We went out, get on the boat, and then 
literally within a few minutes we come across a group of dolphins, of bottlenose dolphins, and we think, well, this, this is kind of nice. Okay, it's not blue whales, it's not whales in general, which we're interested in, but we record all marine mammals. And then we went a bit further and we saw a New Zealand fur seal, which was fantastic. And then we went a bit further and then we saw a group of humpback whales. And this just continued throughout the whole day. So we managed to see between 10 and 15 groups of humpback whales, two groups of bottlenose dolphins, a group of common dolphins. We even saw little penguins. And we got back and we thought, okay, we haven't seen blue whales, but my gosh, what an amazing day it was. And just as we were tying up to the jetty, we get a phone call. And basically, there are blue whales out at a, at a little point that's a bit further west at Point Piquet. Blue whales are out there. So, so it's 5.30 in the evening, and we look at each other, and, and Chris looks at me, and he says, what do you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, Chris, we're out. So we took off, and we went and got photo ID, we got information, and came back, and it was just such an absolutely magical day. <laughs> so obviously it was quite a worry. We didn't know how it was going to end up, but we had an amazing start to the season. That sounds like a really lucky day for you. Because when, when, when you want, when you look for things, most often you don't find them. And when you don't look for things, you just find them. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll never forget that day. So, so what excites you about the work that you do? And, and how did you get into this work? So believe it or not, I actually started in mangrove ecology. So I worked for about five years, uh, either on restoration of mangrove systems or looking at uh, animal-plant interactions, so looking at crustaceans, at, at crab, mangrove crabs, or different types of crabs within the mangrove systems. And I absolutely love that. The idea was that I went into this because I wanted to make a difference, so I wanted to change the way uh, we manage our own environment and how we interact with it. And over the years, I really was interested as well in believe it or not, totally off topic, but cultures, because I'm, uh, my background is multicultural. And so looking at a, a higher trophic level within the marine system, such as marine mammals, in fact, many marine mammals live in highly social complex societies. And so I was really interested in the cultural aspect of these societies and how they lived with each other, how they use that to survive, and also how we interacted with them. And not only was I just really interested in them, you know, and how they function and our similarities as well as humans and differences, obviously. Also, I realized there was a really, really good vessel there to be able to make change because people just quite naturally connect with marine mammals. And so there's an opportunity to really bring that science forward and, and hopefully make a, a positive impact um, in how we can serve our systems. Okay. so. You've been doing quite a few projects on different things, um, on whales, and you've done some work on dolphins and seals as well, right? I've been reading about um, the fact that the ocean is getting louder. Is it getting louder, and why should we care? Okay, so um, the ocean is getting more noisy, and absolutely, we, in terms of conservation of animals uh, and protecting them, we need to be quite conscious that animals within the underwater world depend quite heavily on sound to be able to navigate uh, the marine system. 
Of course, visibility can be quite restricted underwater. And for us living in air, we can use sight uh, quite effectively. We use sound as well, but in the ocean, sound actually travels much faster than it does in air. So in fact, it's a really fantastic way of communicating. And of course, for dolphins that use sonar, for instance, they use that to actually create a three-dimensional image, if you will, of the underwater environment. And so this is really critical, using sound to be able to communicate with each other, to keep in contact with each other, to detect predators as well as detect prey. And so, and to be able to actually see the environment in itself. And so if we introduce noise in through our human activities, then many of these really important signals are masked. And so animals aren't able to hear them as well. And the other thing is there, there's some noise that we create actually that has a really um, an impulsive signal, which has a very, um, very quick rise and drop in the energy. And so when you have a pulse uh, um, with that, with a high amplitude or a large amplitude, and you're very, very close to that sound source, it can actually impact you uh, physically. So in fact, it can do um, physiological, um, has, has physiological effects as well as uh, has physical effects. So um, it can cause injury, basically. So this is absolutely the reason why we need to understand that. And of course, we may not be aware of it because the sound that's within the water, only a certain part of that energy will actually cross that uh, boundary between the ocean and the air. And so we won't hear the same thing that's being heard underwater. So what are the causes of these noises? Like what causes these noises? So we have, yeah, so obviously our own recreational activities when we're out on boats and things, if it's a, a region that's actually quite um, close to human populations, for example, a river system, even cars and vehicles crossing a bridge will make noise because that sound will actually transmit through the support beams of the bridge and into the water. Also, of course, our industrial activities, uh, such as uh, seismic um, development, looking at pile driving, for instance, and dredging, and as well, defense activities will cause noise. Yes. Could you explain what is pile driving and dredging? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, pile driving. So, when we're developing wharves, of course, the wharf needs to be on some support beams. And so these are the piles, basically, that support the structure. To be able to get the pile deep enough into the seabed so that it's stable, it needs to be hammered in. And so literally, that, that's what's done. It, it's hammered with um, quite a heavy weight down. And that hammering causes that Im impulsive signal that has um, quite a large amplitude. And so if you're very, very close to that uh, a pile being driven, uh, then you can have injury occur. And if you're further away, you might have a, a, a permanent hearing damage or maybe a temporary hearing damage. If you're further away, it may be a stressful thing to, to hear. And of course, stress in itself is something important for us to understand 
because that can cause um, depressed immune cysts, for instance. So getting an idea of what, at what ranges you may have these impacts is quite a standard, in fact, in looking at environmental impact assessments in terms of the underwater noise that's being produced. And of course, in every environment, it's a, it's a different environment. So um, it ends up that you can't, most of the time, you can't actually sort of say, oh, okay, well, in this study, it, the range was 500 meters or one kilometer or two kilometers. And so let's just apply that in a different area. As soon as it's a different area, it's gonna have different acoustic properties associated with it. And so the attenuation of sound will be different in that location. Right, right. So don't these animals, when, they, when they're disturbed by these noises, don't they show behavioral changes? And do they not um, try to get away from it? Or what happens to them? So many times, absolutely they do. And it depends on what level of impact it has for them to decide how important it is to, for instance, leave an area. So uh, within the Swan River, in fact, uh, one of my PhD students, Sarah Marley, was looking at vessel traffic, you know, in within a really, really busy area, so within a, a port area. And it turns out that that area is very important for foraging. And so that's an area where, in fact, a behavioral response to the heavy vessel traffic um, was not seen in terms of the animals abandoning the location. However, it was seen in more subtle behavioral changes. Now, compare that to a study that I did with a, a master's student of mine, Estenio Baiba, and that was looking at the same dolphins, and it was looking at pile driving, and in fact, during pile driving activities, they the terms of occupancy in that area, the dolphins reduced the time they were using the area when pile driving was occurring. So at the moment, in fact, um, I'm looking at the recovery time. So we know that they were not occupying the area or they were occupying it to a much lesser extent when, when pile driving is occurring. But how long does it take for them to come back in? So that's the question I'm looking at at the moment. Great. So how, how, do you, how do you answer your questions? What kind of methods do you use to measure things, for example, underwater? So, you, you're, you know, it's, such, it's so interesting because marine mammals, like so many animals, you know, you only see a portion of their lives in a sense. So, of course, marine mammals spend most of their time under the water. And so how do you study an animal that's spending most of its time under the water? You know, you can't observe it during these periods. Uh, you might be able to if somehow you get some cameras under or you, you are doing some study that involves underwater observations. But most of the time, marine mammal studies are in fact done using um, observational studies on, on top of the water. However, of course, you can use tagging these days. And so tags are incredibly useful in terms of archiving information about their movements through water and where they're headed to and how often um, they might be surfacing, for instance. The other thing is using acoustics. So we can use acoustics, passive acoustics, to be able to receive animals that are producing sound. And so we can, uh, if we put an array in of say uh, three or four uh, hydrophone or underwater recorders, then we can actually triangulate and work out where these animals are moving. If we then marry that with, for instance, a field light atop a hill where these animals are being tracked 
over the surface as as they surface you know every time there's sort of a positioning and then they go down and a new surfacing and so you start getting this really beautiful picture of exactly what's going on and then if you actually have a vessel that's doing focal follows and getting really detailed information of how they're interacting with one another then you start to build this really great picture of how they're using the environment so I think the answer is, okay, what technologies are used? But also, in my mind, marrying the different technologies, in fact, is a fantastic way to try to build the bigger picture of how they're utilizing an area or how they're responding to something. Right. So here the light is, is, is an engineer's device that civil engineers use, right, to measure the angles? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So surveyors theodolite. Exactly. So basically it takes, uh, you're able to measure the vertical angle of the, so if you're sitting, if you can imagine, you're sitting up at the top of the hill and you're looking at whales down below on the water. And if you look through the eyepiece of this surveyor's tool and you line up the, the, the whale where it's touching the water as it surfaces, then you get the vertical angle uh, from the horizon down and you also get the horizontal angle the bearing and so using this and using uh, trigonometry knowing the height of your hill you can actually work out the position of the animal right, right. on the water mm -hmm. and so that that's such a great tool and and uh, when you play sounds in underwater for the animals is that is that like is that similar to uh, uh, playing bird calls to attract them? <laughs> yes, so playback experiments. Uh, so there are playback experiments that uh, are definitely uh, conducted for marine mammals. Uh, and yeah, absolutely, you, you could play them and see what the responses are, or of course um, playing different sounds that we produce and, and look at their response. Another study that I've been involved with with the Department of Fisheries uh, here in Western Australia that's been really interesting is trying to work out whether putting pingers on crazy pots, the lines basically, uh, they go up to the floats on the surface of the water, whether that helps in terms of whales hearing where the source is, in other words, positioning the location of those cray pots so that they can move around it. And this of course is a, a, a study that was done in trying to reduce the numbers of entanglements of whales within these lines. So using that kind of experiment, we can get an idea of how we can best uh, manage and share and interact with these animals, um, you know, share that environment with them, but in a safe way. Right. Um, so how, what kind of measures do you suggest? Um, um, obviously, because your, your work has a lot of conservation um, a lot of conservation value. What kind of measures do you suggest for conserving these animals and uh, and decreasing the noise interference? So there, are, of course, many different measures, and absolutely, I think all of them have their merits and have their place to be used. Um, one of the really common methods for marine mammals, particularly, um, in fact, cetaceans, the whales and dolphins is to use photo ID and of course photo ID is used in many different animals. So we've just been uh, finalizing a study, so this is with a uh, colleague of mine, Chris Spurton, and this amazing photographer um, down south in the, in the southwest of Australia. And this photographer just takes these photos, he just loves taking photos of dolphins and whales, 
And he's basically offered uh, these photos to use for photo ID of, of southern right whales. Uh, and between Chris and this fellow Ian and a student, an honor student of mine, uh, <clears throat> we have been able to look at how many different individual southern right whales are in fact using uh, an area called Geograph Bay. So this area in Geograph Bay is not actually listed as, for instance, an emerging aggregation area where mother and calf pairs occur there. Uh, and what we found just now, literally last week, is that um, this area has the minimum number for consideration as an emerging calving ground, according to the national uh, the national management plan for southern right whales. So it's just absolutely exciting news. So, so do you suggest um, measures like not having or having lesser noise, or w what do you suggest about about having noises like near near the cities? So, in terms of producing noise, uh, I mean, this location that I just mentioned in Geograph Bay, that's an area that's increasingly being used. Uh, for recreational activities and whale watching as well. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful location for tourism. And so we just really need to understand how we can use and share that environment uh, so that we're minimizing the impact. So uh, for instance, there may be zonations where it's appropriate to be using vessels at speed or um, conducting certain recreational activities, certainly industrial activities. There are certain areas where they can be done and other areas where uh, there should be a restriction for those industrial activities. And so, you know, as, as you're saying, you know, looking at marine parks and the management and zonations of those things is absolutely critical. So understanding how these animals are using them, what the status of the populations are, that's critical to be able to then understand what we can do about it in terms of underwater noise as well as other disturbance. Right, right. So, so w tell us about other projects that you that you're currently working on. Oh, okay. Um, so, I work on a lot of different projects. So, um, the other one has been assisting the ocean cleanup, and uh, which is in the Netherlands. And a lovely lady that actually she was the uh, science leader uh, during the period that I've been doing the the work for the ocean cleanup. Julia Reiser, she's absolutely amazing. And um, literally, as I mentioned, this was work uh, in the middle of, of the Pacific, so where the uh, Great Pacific garbage patch is located. So uh, you may know this is an area of accumulation of rubbish that actually comes from a lot of different countries and locations. And because of the currents, they all accumulate and go in circles in there. And so um, that project, so I was engaged to, to coordinate the aerial observers because a lot of the work I do is, for instance, doing aerial surveys for marine mammals. So, um, but this was really different. Usually you, you have uh, an aircraft that's quite a small aircraft. You have the wings that are overhead wings so that your windows are below them, you can look down. And quite often you even have what are called bubble windows that so you can actually look through the, the windows, put your head in the little bubble and look quite low down in the aircraft. Okay, so to get to the middle, of the Pacific Ocean, of course a little aircraft was not going to do it, right? <laughs> so instead they had organized a, um, a Vietnam era 
Hercules C-130 to get there. So this, this aircraft obviously was, was an older aircraft. Um, it was set up inside like you thought you might be going to Vietnam. <laughs> so, and of course, we couldn't use the little tiny windows to be able to look for this rubbish and count the rubbish and work out the density of the rubbish. So uh, the setup was literally the paratroop doors being opened when we were on site and us being in harnesses um, and sitting up forward and looking <laughs> over <laughs> to count to the rubbish. So we could literally just put our feet over and dangle them over if we really wanted to. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. That's been a great project. That sounds like an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was hard work. But the, the people that I worked with, and again, that's what makes it. These amazing people that you work with and other scientists, um, that real team, you know, feeling and everyone helping each other. So did, did you see this um, uh, photograph which is going um, viral online where uh, some remote um, island or remote place is full of plastic now because, uh, because of all the plastic waste that is thrown around? Yeah, I've, I've briefly seen that. And of course, there are plastic accumulations, you know, in a lot of a range of different locations, either due to the source or due to the fact that there are accumulation zones. So, yeah, obviously, it's a big topic at the moment. And that's an area that I've uh, more recently moved uh, into because of, of this fantastic scientist, uh, Julia. So, um, yeah, and looking at the potential for entanglement. So, at the moment, I'm doing an impact assessment looking at the risk of entanglement to marine mammals, um, you know, from floating nets and things like this. Right. Okay. So if you had the power to change, what would you change in the way science is being done? So one of the things that I think that happens in terms of the life of an academic, right? So being at a university and the way the universities function uh, these days and the direction that they're going as well. Within the academic world, more and more emphasis is being placed on number of publications and the funding that you pull in. And while those are absolutely critical and they need to be recognized, too much emphasis on that means in my mind, that there's a high risk of publications suffering from lower quality because there's high pressure for scientists to produce a high number of publications. And also in terms of pulling money in, it means that researchers quite often are not addressing really critical questions because of the fact that they have to answer the questions where they know there's going to be funding. So. A lot of creativity, I think, is is lost in that. And I think, you know, one thing that I've, I've I really sort of in my mind, I feel like I've learned over the last oh, five or ten years is that, you know, sometimes that causes us to get to lose sight of what really matters. So it's too easy to fall into this trap where we're just driven by trying to pull in more money and trying to publish, and rather than the passion of what we want to change or what we want to achieve or do being the drivers. And so I'd say if I can change something, it would be that we as scientists can keep our eyes on what really makes us passionate about research and what actually creates us to be able to have that amazing creativity to find 
incredible solutions that we wouldn't otherwise find. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, I have a ra rapid fire round. Very, very quick questions. What, what would you be if you are not a scientist? <laughs> okay, um, there are a couple different things. Uh, one is I'm moving more into photography and videography, so I'm going in that direction and marrying that to actually tell the science story. So that's one. And then the other one's totally off topic. I'd be a ballet dancer because that was my training when I was young. <laughs> totally <laughs> off. <laughs> cool. Okay, dolphins or whales? Which ones do you prefer? Oh, that, that is such a cheating question. <laughs> Neither. They're all amazing. <laughs> and all animals are amazing. And, you know, I mean, so often actually the marine mammals get more attention than, than some of the really amazing, absolutely critical uh, smaller animals or maybe less. But cuddly animals, I don't know. But, um, you know, that's not quite right either. You know, all animals are absolutely amazing. Okay, Th thank you very much, Chandra. You're very welcome. That was Dr. Chandra Salgado Kent. I'm your host, Ravindra, and you can follow me on Twitter at Ravindra underscore PN. That is R A V I N D R A underscore PN. And don't forget to check out Journal of Animal Ecology .wordpress.com for more interesting stories. If you like our podcast, please share and subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.